Overall, the economic recovery appears to be continuing at a moderate pace, albeit at a rate that is both uneven across sectors and frustratingly slow from the perspective of millions of unemployed and underemployed workers. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today's Tuesday, June 7th, and that was Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, you heard at the top. Today on the podcast, something that I almost feel like we've never done before. Economists who ask a big, big question, in this case, why are poor people poor, and actually come up with answers, actual provable Answers like science, like science. I don't exactly. believe it. Yeah, no. I've I've been wanting to talk to these economists for a very long time. They use randomized clinical trials, just like pharmaceutical companies do, but they do it in the field to figure out why are people in India and Africa and South America why are they poor and what can be done to make them less poor. Real answers, fascinating insights into what it is like to be one of the poorest people on earth. But first, Jacob, we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, I believe you have today's Planet Money Indicator. I do. Today's Planet Money Indicator, $780 billion. Americans owed $780 billion on their credit cards as of April. That's according to figures that the Federal Reserve released today. And, you know, $780 billion, this is a big credit card bill. But it's actually down by about 20% from just before the crisis back in 2008. It's been falling rather steadily over the past few years now. And, you know, one thing about today's indicator, it's a reminder that what we went through, it wasn't just a housing boom and bust. It was a broader credit boom and bust. Yes, housing was where we saw the most obviously crazy lending. It was where most of the money went in this country. But during those boom years, everybody was lending money to everybody else for basically everything. And the aftermath of a credit boom is really long and really painful, as as we're experiencing right now. It takes years for people to pay back their loans, for the market to right itself. And of course, we're seeing that in a big way in the housing market. But it also shows up even in these credit card numbers. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks. So on to today's deep read. So we've been asking this question for a while now, a year and a half, something like that. Why are poor countries poor? And, you know, this is the central question of economics. It is the question that Adam Smith raised in his seminal book that created basically the field of modern economics, the wealth of nations, an inquiry into the wealth of nations. And economists still don't really have a good answer. There's a lot of high level debate. You know, here in Manhattan, we have two of the big, big debaters, Jeff Sachs up at Columbia, who says, Oh, it's just because rich countries don't give enough money to poor countries. And then we have Bill Easterly down at NYU saying, no, 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 it's because rich countries give too much money and interfere with local politics, et cetera, et cetera. And that's very common, these kind of big sweeping questions. But there's a team of people at MIT and Harvard who have done these trials, these clinical trials, where they will ask really specific, really narrow questions to try and figure out what is life like for very poor people and what kinds of interventions can improve their lives and which ones work and which ones don't work, which ones work better, which ones work worse. And through a series of these randomized trials, they've really uncovered an awful lot of surprising information about the incredibly rich financial lives of even very, very poor people, how those people see the world and what kinds of things can help them. So we're going to be talking to Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee, and they have this 
new book, which I really enjoyed, called Poor Economics, A Radical Rethinking of the Way to Fight Global Poverty. It talks about their work around the world, Chile, India, Kenya, Indonesia. And I started by asking Esther to describe how do you do this? How do you design one of these experiments? You could start asking a question, what would be the best way to improve, say, the quality of education? Should I put computers into schools or should I put extra teachers or should I pay parents to send their kids to school? And the way you're going to do that is going, you're going to randomly select some villages and do one of these programs and compare them to another set of villages. So now you have a lot of villages and you've changed just one thing. And because you've changed this one thing randomly, you can trace the effect of the intervention you put in place. And now you can answer your question very precisely and you don't have this on the one hand, on the other hand, that economists are famous for. Yeah, I I always like the Ronald Reagan quote that economists are people who see something happening in practice and want to find out if it could happen in theory. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even when you get at that micro level in the past, there are these sort of economic development truisms that I've heard for years and years that, for example, if poor people don't pay for something, they won't value it. If you just give them something for free, whether it's education or healthcare or malarial bed nets, if you just give it to them, they're going to treat it like like it's free, like it's garbage. They won't take it seriously. So, so that is an idea that at least some development economists have, have argued very strongly. You need to make people pay for things or else they won't value them, which is a real condemnation of a lot of aid around the world, free food, free medical care. So so explain to me what you learned. Should we talk about bed nets? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With bed nets, this was absolutely a kind of a flashpoint issue on because Jeff Sachs... He's uh, one of the most prominent economic development thinkers uh, at Columbia. That's right. Had argued that, you know, you should give away bed nets, and that's one of the kind of best buys in in development. And a bunch of people jumped on him when he said that, saying that, you know, but if you give things away, then exactly as you said, people don't value them, and they'll just end up as fishing nets. So Uh, let's explain why... Why are bed nets such a big deal? I mean, bed nets seem like something from romantic Victorian dramas or something. Like, why, why is it such, so important today? So malaria is one of the biggest killers in the world, particularly in Africa. 85% of the victims are in Africa. And we don't have a vaccine for malaria. Um, it can be treated, but it's, it still kills a lot of people, particularly children. And bed nets that are impregnated with insecticide are an effective way to limit or, or stop the, the spread of malaria. And the reason why they would be irrational to give them for free is that if I sleep under the bed net, that's also good for you because the mosquitoes don't bite me and therefore even if I have malaria, you are not as likely to get malaria. Yeah, we recently did a couple podcasts on the idea of public goods, which is that if you only leave a public good to the market, it will be undersupplied, underused. So since I want you to be using a bed net, it might even be good for me in New York that kids in Africa have it, right? Because people will fly on a plane from Africa and maybe they'll get malaria, they'll give it to me in New York. So so the world wants that 85% of cases in Africa to become far fewer cases. So you can convince economists this is a case where, where free bed nets make sense unless free bed nets are completely ineffective because people will say, oh, it's free. 
I'm not going to use it or I don't value it. Exactly. So the the question becomes, it's really an empirical question. On the one hand is maybe people would buy them even if they were not free, in which case you can still sell them. If people really value not having malaria and have enough money, then maybe you can still charge something and people would still buy them, in which case you, why not sell them? You could use the money to do something else. So that's the first part of the answer. That is To get to answer this question, should bednet be given away for free? You need to answer uh, how sensitive people are to prices. And the second question is, you need to answer whether if you give them away for free, you have indeed this psychological effect of people not using them. So what did you do? How do, how do you answer so, that question? Uh, two of our colleagues did this. What they did was they offered people at health clinic, mothers at health clinics, vouchers, where voucher either is valueless and you pay the full price or you it's 20% off or 40% off or 80% off or free. So these vouchers were given randomly to people. So it, one mother will get a free bed net, another mother will get a half-price bed net, another mother will have to pay full price if she wants a bed net. Exactly. And then what they did was the first thing they did was they compared What's the take-up? And they found that basically by the time you get to something like 20% of the price, demand really drops to almost nothing. Whereas if you give it free or even at 10% of the price, there's a fair amount of demand, but then it drops very, very fast, surprisingly fast in a sense. That was the first thing they found. Now that, to me, I have to say is not surprising. I mean, giving something away for free, more people are going to want it than if you charge them for it. But the key question is, do they use the bed nets? Right. Exactly as you said, there was pushback. Well, if you, people will take it if you give it to them for free, but they won't use it. So what they did is they had random visits to these households where you know you went and looked if the baby is sleeping under the bed net. And they found absolutely no evidence that people who got it for free were less likely to use it. They, they were, were using them they as were much. They were slightly as... more likely to use it than anybody else. And if you look at the people who were given the free voucher, they were much more likely to A, take it, and B, to use it. So overall, it turned out to be wonderful if you gave it at these very low prices because you got more take-up and more usage. So overall, it was really like a, a dramatic extra win you get from subsidizing these things. And it's actually cost-effective. That is, it, it costs you less per malaria averted to give them for free than to ask people to pay a little bit because you're more likely to get close to a level of coverage that is high enough that mosquitoes just pack up and go somewhere else. <laughs> right. uh, my wife works at UNICEF, so she's a bit obsessed with malarial bed nets. And one thing that puzzles me, they're not expensive, right? I mean, how, how much is a... Six dollars. Six dollars. So do you have an idea of why people wouldn't pay six dollars when it could very well you know, save their child's life? I think that that's a general puzzle that you have um, about preventive care, which is you find people not paying for bed nets, also not paying for to put chlorine in their water. You have the same kind of drop-off when you start asking people to pay for chlorine in the water that will prevent diarrheas and things like that. Diarrheas, which in America is an inconvenience, but in much of the developing world is death for children. That's, Absolutely. Yeah. And that is something which is quite... Surprising at first glance, why aren't people uh, spending more money on preventive care? 
it's not because they don't care about their children, because you have the same parents who are not immunizing a child against measles, for example, and who will then spend thousands of rupees to to take this kid to the doctor once the kid has measles. Or you have the same parents not paying a bed net and at the same time paying for the malaria medicine once the kid has malaria. So this is not because they don't care about it. So we try to discuss some of that in the book, try to really understand this this puzzle. And we think it's a combination of factors. One is um, information. It is just very, very difficult to learn about the effect of preventive care because you're taking an action and then something does not happen. So you sleep under bed net and then you don't get malaria. You get immunized and you don't get measles. So the relationship is not very direct. And even in, and you point this out in the book, even in America where we were college-educated people who've taken years and years of biology courses fall under the sway of these ridiculous ideas that you shouldn't take immunization. So even if some of the most highly educated people in the world can make very poor analysis, uh, then how much more so for people with very low education, very low you know, access to understanding how diseases work? And very low trust, often for very good reasons. I think in a lot of cases, we in our countries, it's not that we understand better, but when we are told something, we have no reason not to believe it. If you are someone in India and your government claims something, you may have some reason to doubt that maybe they are trying to convince you of something that may or may not be a good idea from your own private point of view, given your history with that government. So when someone from the government arrives and says you should immunize your children, you're like, well, I'm not so sure I have to believe that. That's the second factor. And then the third factor, which explains why people don't take preventive care, is also something which we suffer from, is this tendency to procrastination. So that's the difficulty of going from intention to action. Something like immunization, you could say, well, I could do it this month, but then if I do it next month, the probability that something bad happens in the meantime is quite low. So I might as well wait till next month because I'm really very busy now. Then next month come, and again you postpone, and again you postpone, and again you postpone. Yeah, I'm planning to lose a lot of weight, but I'm going to start, I think, next month because <laughs> this month there's a lot of picnics and, you know, it's beautiful outdoors. I want to go to the park and eat a hot dog. So, so can you break a problem like that down using these randomized trials? Can you break a problem like that down, uh, give instruction to one group of people, see if better instruction encourages better better usage? Or I don't quite know how you would randomize trust in government, that might be tough. But are there ways of breaking down a problem like that into its component pieces and figuring out what exactly is going on? What do we need to do in addition to immunization or in addition to bed nets? Should we give out pamphlets? Should we have courses? Should we have schedules? What do we do? So uh, I'm going to give an example. It's a study on on HIV where they had a, a number of different strategies, but two salient ones. Uh, where one was a very conventional kind of HIV will kill you, don't have sex strategy. And the other one was to actually tell them, and this is the more remarkable one, you may think that you know your classmates are other people you shouldn't have sex with. The really dangerous people to have sex with is these responsible-looking older men. Uh, and that just telling that fact has a, has a massive effect and f- trying to... F- 
so intimidate them into not having sex has no effect whatsoever. And right. the, telling kids because I could see this being very big in America. Please have sex with your classmates. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the president could get involved. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite phrased that way. But. Keep sex local. <laughs> so wait, all right. You you scare the hell out of them. You say you will die. This is terrible. So we didn't. That's the that's the official curriculum. The official curriculum for HIV/AIDS prevention in Kenya and, to be honest, in in much of uh, East Africa and parts of the U.S. is this. <laughs> Like um, so, scared abs- straight. Kind of scared thing. straight. Sex is dangerous. Everybody who's have HIV just right. don't have sex until you marry. So that's the strategy that is being used. That's the strategy that the government uses everywhere. And so we wanted to see the effect of that strategy. So what we did is we worked with the government to uh, train the teachers in the official curriculum in a randomly selected set of schools, so about 200 out of 400, and then we compared the effects. We have now followed these kids from 2003, where we did the experiment, till today, 2010, both for teenage pregnancy and for HIV and for herpes, which is another sexually transmitted disease. And we find no effect whatsoever of this intervention. The scared straight thing The scared straight strategy. Uh, what does it doesn't make them have more sex. It just is neutral. It, it seems to have no effect which is a, a tragedy because the these this children, when we started working with them, are HIV-free, number one. Number two, their sexual habits are not yet formally established, so they really are the window of hope. And if you miss the window of hope because of the, of the bad strategy, then you've already missed something big. So that's why this other strategy was also tried. Of It turns out that, in fact, in reality the rate of HIV is much, much higher among older men, partly because they have had a longer time to get infected. So what you have is that the older men are likely to have HIV. They sleep with younger girls whose infection rate is about the same as a result. And then the younger boys have a much lower infection rate. So what we told the girls and the boys is these three numbers. And that strategy... Uh, had a big impact in reducing teenage pregnancy, which is a pretty certain indicator of risky sexual behavior, in particular with older men. So what the kids did is they continued to have sex, but they had sex with older boys, but because they didn't want to become pregnant, they used condoms more, less to protect themselves from HIV, but just not to be pregnant. But that, of course, also protects them from HIV at the same time. So I want to see if I understand. So just telling them... Those older guys are sketchy. <laughs> as far as you can tell, they have sex possibly as much, but with younger men. And I'm guessing the power dynamic is, is more likely to be equal. So, you know, a, a 15-year-old girl can say to a 15-year-old boy, no, I, I insist we use condoms, whereas to a 30-year-old man, maybe she'll be more intimidated, something like that. Yeah, the power dynamic is definitely part of it. Another part of it is that having a, a kid, if she becomes pregnant and the, and the dad is 17, that's very, very inconvenient. But if, if he's 30, maybe it's a way. 30, he can actually take care of the child. And it could be a source of income. It could solve a lot of problems, in theory. In so the, the, the disagreement of, of pregnancy is different with a younger boy and an older man, which, again, goes into that direction. So I want to talk about the book broadly. So I really enjoy the book. And so what I love about your book is... And, and I love about your work. As I say, I've, I've followed your work for many years. It's very textured. It's very nuanced. It's not one sweeping vision. It's not simply 
always give everything away free or, you know, never scare people or whatever. It's just if you want a lot of adoption of bed nets, we feel pretty strongly that making them cheap or free is a good strategy. But we're not sure that works for school books. So we're going to have to run a different study to find out if that works for school books. And even if we figure both of those things out, we need to run some other study to figure out if, if there's a way to get people to eat more protein through incentives or this or that. And I really like that approach because it, it seems grounded and real. But it's also harder to contain thousands of little data points. It's it's much easier to approach the world with one big sweeping theory. So um, so I guess I want to ask, I mean, do, are there sort of broad sweeping conclusions you have or is it just that's not how the world works or that's not where we are yet? We just haven't done enough. This is still too new. We, we, we're not there yet. Well, the last chapter of the book is called In Place of a Sweeping Conclusion. Uh, that sort of tells you where we are, at least. Um, but I actually think that it's less of a problem not to have a sweeping conclusion than it might sound. Because in some ways, when you actually are a policymaker, you you have a job. Your job is to spend money, and you, you, you have to promote education. At this point, you're not really asking the question, is education, you know, the best thing since sliced bread? You are really asking questions kind of like we are asking. So I have a million dollars to spend in this province. What should I do? Exactly. I mean, we, we really operate at the level at which much of the actual effective policy discourse operates. I just have one last question, which is we did a story about a school in Haiti. They don't have a building. They just have classes in a church, and it's... There's too many kids. This is in La Tibonite, which is north of Port-au-Prince. It was out of the earthquake zone, but a very, very poor area. And most of their classes are actually held behind the church, just out in the outdoors with um, with like a frond roof. So they get the kids get rained on all the time. The, the classes are right next to the outhouse. It's right where cholera is at its worst in Haiti and malaria, obviously. And they really want a school. And some of our listeners raised about 3000 bucks, sent it to them, and the principal thought he could build a school for $3,000. Turns out all he could build was a foundation. So one of our listeners is a, a building contractor, and he's decided to devote himself to building this school. He believes it'll cost around $80,000. And I've been to this school. They, you know, they don't have notebooks. They don't have textbooks. They don't, they don't have old pencils and paper for all the kids. Some of our listeners have said, wait a second, maybe they don't need a school. Maybe they need other things. Maybe they need textbooks or better health care or whatever. You know, my, my answer to that is the principal and the community have said we want a school. So I'm, I'm inclined to trust them. But, I mean, do, do you have guidance? Are there things you know? You know, let's say they had $80,000. Is there a way for them to decide? Is, is building a school the right thing? Is there any advice you can give us? I think generally the evidence from economics is that brick-and-mortar expenses are less useful than improving teacher quality. There's, I think, a fair amount of kind of evidence which seems to suggest that even with fairly poor infrastructure, you can, if you had a teacher who was excited about teaching and the materials were appropriate to the ch children and the teacher focused on actually teaching the children in his class rather than some ideal child who doesn't exist there, I think you get very good education even when you, the infrastructure is extremely poor. 
I think that's that seems to me my my you know two minute summary of my of that literature seems to be that. One thing to add is we've worked with a lot of schools um, in Kenya in particular. People always want buildings. That's kind of especially the principals of schools always want building. From their own point of view, that makes a lot of sense. They have to work in these schools. That's quite unpleasant. So that's kind of the thing that people always ask, and that's very expensive. $80,000 is quite a lot of money. With $80,000, you could go a long way in hiring an assistant teacher for these classes, in providing the kids with deworming medicine. I think for $80,000 in Haiti, you could hire 80 assistant teachers, or 80 teachers. Yeah. <laughs> and know. if you think of it from this point of view, then that might not be the most efficient use of the money from a social point of view. Now, if you hired 80 assistant teachers, you would help 80 communities. So you wouldn't help this one person just as much. So from his point of view, obviously, would that makes sense that concentrating the resources on him or on them, on this particular community, is a good thing. If you were calculating the increase in student learning per dollar spent, it's almost sure that you could do better by doing cheaper things on a larger scale. But it's a little bit a matter of choice. People do like to to provide brick and mortars because that's like something that looks tangible. The people who receive the brick and mortar are very happy because that's you know a lot of value to them. It's one big snapshot that you can put on the cover of your marketing yeah. materials. And, and since things that are more like the software, <laughs> which is what are you going to teach, how you're going to teach it, who is going to teach it, what are the incentives that are given to the parents, to the teacher, to the students, are actually probably cheaper to achieve but less um, photogenic (laughs) and so one way is to say let's try and focus the money on where it's going to make the most difference without being influenced by whether or not it's photogenic let us know what you think about today's show. We love getting your emails, planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Oh,